Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast in the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jeff Fort about his book, William's Gang, a notorious slave trader and his cargo of black convicts, published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Dr. Fort is a professor of history at Lamar University. William's Gang explores the career of prominent slave trader William H. Williams, whose operation was based in Washington, D.C., His infamous Yellow House slave pen was a major stop in the domestic slave trade. Dr. Ford examines William's life as a slave trader, and particularly the legal troubles he found himself in when he was accused of trying to sell 27 enslaved convicts from Virginia in Louisiana. The myriad of courtroom battles Williams went through are placed alongside the larger history of slavery and the slave trade in the antebellum period, as Ford explores issues of slave criminality, Southern law, and the U.S. economy. Dr. Ford, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. So to get things started, can you tell our listeners how you came to this topic and why you chose to study it? I really fell into this topic uh, purely by accident. Uh, I was researching a previous book, uh, slave Against Slave, uh, and that book uh, was about violence uh, within the slave quarters uh, that took place uh, between and among enslaved people. And I was looking at uh, really any sources I could find to, to document those kinds of conflicts. And I turned for that project uh, as one of my sources to Louisiana State Penitentiary Records, and uh, I looked at the Board of Control reports that were published uh, and available for, oh, I don't know, maybe 15 or so years uh, prior to the Civil War. Uh, These Board of Control reports would uh, list the prisoners uh, in the state penitentiary and the uh, crime, therefore. And I wanted to see, I knew that Louisiana was pretty unique in terms of uh, imprisoning enslaved people, Uh, so I wanted to see if any uh, enslaved people were there for having uh, committed any crimes uh, upon other enslaved people. And uh, I I ended up compiling a database of about 200 or so names uh, in that process. But there was one group of of 10 uh, that in particular uh, caught my attention. Uh, These were all uh, enslaved people from Virginia. And uh, under the the crime column of these reports, uh, it it was listed as, quote, uh, Williams Negroes. Of course, uh, I I didn't know what that meant. But it, it didn't really uh, fit with the project I was working on at the time, so I set it aside. Uh, later, I was doing some research in uh, Virginia, at the Library of Virginia, 
and I came across a, a microfilm reel. And uh, toward the tail end of this microfilm reel, there was a uh, list of uh, enslaved people who were sold out of the Virginia State Penitentiary in 1840. And I... I all the list of names and they matched the names that I'd already seen uh, in Louisiana. And uh, I just kind of wanted to put the two pieces you know, together. Uh, but, you know, I had to finish up the other book first. And so this sat there for a few years, uh, but then I wanted to get back to it so I could uh, put the two pieces of the puzzle together because I knew there had to be a story there if I had you know, the, the same bunch of enslaved people sitting in two different state penitentiaries uh, in 1840. Uh, something was going on. So I wanted to find out what that was. And, and I was you know, interested in turning to uh, a, a different kind of history where you know, I, I had a plot. I had not written anything with a plot before. So that was uh, uh, something I wanted to, to, to take on. And so you've already mentioned that, you know, you found these enslaved convicts in the Virginia penitentiary after finding them in the Louisiana one. Um, and you began talking about, you know, these enslaved convicts and how they're, you know, convicted. And then, you know, just there's this whole uh, controversy about what to do with them. And they eventually um, the state of Virginia eventually decides to have them sold outside of the state. And so for our listeners, you might be sort of unfamiliar with this topic. Why was it that Virginians uh, seemed so apt, or at least, you know, they seemed a little bit conflicted about, you know, executing enslaved people would people, which people who don't have as much knowledge on this topic might expect to happen. And instead they wanted to simply um, ship them out for sale somewhere else. Why was this happening? Well, it, the way that Virginia law functioned at the time, uh, whenever enslaved people would be found uh, guilty for a whole series of crimes, uh, almost by default, the standard punishment was execution. Uh, execution was not reserved for uh, only the most heinous of crimes in the uh, in the early nineteenth century. So. Uh, of the enslaved people that I'm looking at, about half of them uh, had been accused of nothing more than theft. Uh, and the, uh, the, the courts that heard their cases uh, put them to death for that. And, you know, certainly uh, the, the criminal justice system uh, of, of Virginia and other slaveholding states, you know, they, they were not shy about putting enslaved people to death uh, when it when it served the social function that they wanted it to uh, you know in the case of a, of a slave rebellion for instance uh, that that those public executions sent a very distinct message uh, to slaves uh, who would be uh, uh, witness to that execution, who would hear about those executions, uh, that that had uh, the effect of exerting a certain type of racial and, and social control. Uh, but at the same time, 
uh, if you followed the strict letter of the law, uh, one would be having these executions on a pretty you know routine basis. And uh, there are certainly uh, owners of enslaved people who were uh, not terribly pleased, you know, uh, about this uh, prospect. Uh, these these events are you know disruptive uh, in in uh, some ways, and uh, you know that they they did like to sort of put uh, put some restraints on on how the law functioned uh, at its most severe. So uh, even even before the law officially allowed. Uh, sale and transportation. This became sort of a, a routine thing. Uh, what would happen is if uh, if a slave was accused of a of a crime, uh, they would uh, appear in court. Uh, there would be typically a panel of uh, five uh, justices, magistrates, uh, in the case of Virginia, and uh, they would they would hear the case. And uh, if if they decided that the uh, enslaved person was was guilty, uh, they they would they would you know, make that ruling. Uh, they would then uh, offer a valuation of that convicted slave, uh, saying what that enslaved person was was worth at market. Uh, and uh, in the event that the execution did go forward. Uh, that execution would take place, you know, there in the county in which the crime had been committed. Um, but what happens in, in all these cases uh, in which uh, enslaved people uh, are sentenced to death, the court records are sent to the Virginia governor, uh, and the executive of the state then gets to review the case, review the case file, all of the evidence. And it's the uh, the governor and the executive council who can decide to uh, reprieve the slave uh, to uh, their their sentence to uh, sale and transportation uh, outside the United States of America, not simply outside of Virginia, but outside of the country. Uh, and and this is actually done pretty frequently. Uh, and initially. Uh, in the 19th century, a lot of the uh, enslaved convicts then would be sent to, uh, you know, Spanish Florida. But then, of course, after the United States acquires Florida, uh, they end up getting sent to places like uh, in the British West Indies. Uh, then uh, Britain uh, emancipates uh, enslaved people uh, in the British Caribbean, so then they end up in the Spanish West Indies. And... Uh, but then they, they too, they, they get overrun with uh, these enslaved convicts. They don't really want uh, enslaved convicts from the United States. There's this assumption that uh, these are you know, bad characters. We don't want uh, this criminal element of the enslaved population in the United States you know, infecting uh, the enslaved population here in you know, Cuba or wherever. Uh, so as you go forward uh, from you know the 1820s and the 1830s and the 1840s, uh, it becomes more difficult uh, to find places that would uh, accept 
uh, these enslaved convict uh, cargoes. Um, but but you do have in Virginia these uh, slave owners who who feel that you know through sale and transportation that they are doing something you know good for their enslaved people that that this is part of their you know paternalistic duty they're they're stepping in to spare the life uh, of this bond person uh, by you know shipping them somewhere else that that they're looking upon that as you know preferable to execution a more humanitarian uh, way of doing things uh, and these these uh, slave owners they they get Paid by the state, regardless uh, whether they were whether the enslaved person was executed uh, or uh, shipped out of the country, the owner got paid by the state the the value uh, of that slave uh, at market. And you mentioned that you know the um, other nations are kind of getting inundated over time with U.S. convicted slaves, and they don't like having them for a variety of reasons. And you kind of touched on that very quickly. But as you note, other states um, south of Virginia as well don't want these convicts either. And this becomes a sort of point of contention for Williams and eventually leads to his illegal troubles. And so why were, you know, people in the United States also fearful of having enslaved convicts from another portion of the country. Right. Well, uh, again, here too, um, there, there is this uh, assumption uh, in the, uh, the states of the deep South, uh, you know, Louisiana, Mississippi in particular, that uh, just as part of the regular domestic slave trade, that they're getting the the refuse, the the castoffs, the enslaved people that you know nobody else wants, the the, the worst of the bunch. Uh, now, in this particular case, we're talking about uh, you know convicted felons. Uh, that makes it you know. So you have states like uh, Louisiana in eighteen seventeen. Uh, they, the state legislature, uh, passed a law uh, prohibiting the uh, introduction into the state uh, of uh, enslaved convicts from from other states. Uh, what had happened was that uh, late the previous year, there was a uh, slaveholder from New York who was relocating uh, to Mississippi. And uh, he was journeying uh, up the uh, Mississippi River uh, to uh, head to his new home uh, with his enslaved uh, labor force in tow. Uh, he stops uh, on his journey uh, in Louisiana to, to spend the night, but somehow word got out that he had uh, among his enslaved labor force, he had uh, some enslaved criminals who had been convicted in, in New York of some various crimes. Uh, and supposedly, uh, the, the details in the newspaper are pretty sketchy on this, but supposedly there was 
you know, a, a mob that was forming, that they were going to run this guy off. So uh, he hightails it back onto the boat uh, with uh, his, his enslaved labor force. They continue on up the river. Uh, that's what inspired the legislature the, the very next month to, to pass this law in 1817. Uh, and, and nobody ends up uh, being prosecuted under this law uh, until the slave trader that I'm studying, William H. Williams, uh, shows up in New Orleans in 1840. And so, yeah, let's talk about a, a little bit more about, you know, Williams. One of the things that you have, you know, a lot of detail about in your book is his slave pen, which is located in Washington, D.C., um, notoriously called the Yellow House, as you said. Um and how do we, what is the Yellow House? What is it like? And how do you have so much detail about it? What are some of the sources that you're able to draw from that, you know, allow us to actually know so much about, you know, this one place of operation for, for Williams? For the, uh, the Yellow House is the private slave jail uh, that William H. Williams uh, ran in the nation's capital in Washington, D.C., uh, it was between 7th and 8th Street uh, and B Street, Maryland Avenue. Uh, it's uh, on uh, today the block that's occupied by the Orville Wright Federal Aviation Administration building. Uh, it's uh, across the street from the Hershorn Museum. All of this is just south of, of the mall in Washington, D.C. Uh, it's uh, about half a mile you know, west of, of the U.S. Capitol. Uh, congressmen noted at the time that you know, they, they could see the Yellow House from the U.S. Capitol. But we, we have quite a bit of information uh, on the Yellow House. You have certainly uh, William H. Williams' uh, advertisements uh, in the local paper uh, advertising his services. Uh, because not only was he a slave trader, uh, but he kept this pen. Uh, so, you know, he would keep the enslaved people that he was planning on selling to the South uh, there. But for other uh, slave traders in the Washington, D.C. area who uh, didn't have slave pens of their own, they could keep their uh, enslaved cargoes in his pen as well uh, prior to their departures from uh, be it Alexandria or, or Baltimore or wherever. Um, so you have all the newspaper data. There, there are newspaper correspondence. There are uh, travelers' accounts. Uh, Frederica Bramer would be in that category, uh, who made a point when they were uh, traveling around, when they were visiting the nation's capital, uh, they, they would stop by the Yellow House uh, just, to, uh, just to visit. They wanted to see what this place looked like. And, and the, the people who worked there, the, the jailer and all that, they were actually uh, rather accommodating in terms of, you know, giving tours to people who showed up, people who said flat out, hey, you know, we're abolitionists, but we'd like to, you know, take a look around. And they're like, well, sure, I'll, I'll give you a little guided tour of our facility. So uh, there's a good three or four accounts. Uh, where we have people talk about who talk about you know being led around uh, the offices. I mean, I I know what's you know hanging on the walls there, what the office looks like. 
you got the big iron gate. You can see the, the courtyard where the enslaved people could uh, congregate during the day. We got uh, descriptions of their you know, sleeping quarters. Uh, but then you also have uh, one very good uh, slave narrative, slave autobiography, from Solomon Northup, the, the author of you know, 12 Years a Slave. Uh, you know, he, of course, uh, was the, uh, the free black man from the North who was uh, kidnapped uh, and, and sold unlawfully into slavery. When his kidnappers uh, take him to Washington, D.C., he is uh, he's drugged and uh, he, he wakes up in the basement dungeon uh, of the Yellow House slave jail. He's chained to the floor. He's got a bench there. Uh, and then uh, his enslaver, uh, James H. Birch, comes in and, and flogs him. Uh, we get a very good description of, of the, the horrors of this slave pen uh, from, from Solomon Northup uh, as well. And, and in, in the movie 12 Years a Slave, there's, there's one scene that, that kind of captures the Yellow House's uh, proximity to the U.S. Capitol. The, 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 it's a, the, the scene zooms out from the slave jail, and then you get to the Capitol Dome, because uh, you're, you're really just you know, a half mile away. Yeah, I mean, the amount of detail that you're able to bring to life for the Yellow House uh, in the book is, you know, amazing considering how many, as you said, how many sources there are for it. Um, And, you know, you're able to kind of really recreate what this place looks like. And as you said, I mean, it was kind of, you know, a very central part of D.C. to the point that, you know, most people uh, were well aware of it. And it's kind of just, it's a little bit crazy to think about uh, in you know our own time to think about that, but it was just a very commonplace at the time. Well, and and really, the Yellow House was a landmark in its day. It was a three-story brick structure, uh, plastered and painted yellow. Uh, but you know, it was there before any of the Smithsonian museums. It was there before you know the uh, the Link Memorial, the Washington Monument. It, I mean, it's it's one of the the prominent buildings of the era. And one of the things that you look at as well when it comes to Williams and the kind of larger culture around him is the sort of legal troubles that slave traders usually face, um, including at times Williams himself. Uh, and so what sort of, you know, what sort of things did slave traders such as Williams have to deal with when it came to, you know, courtroom dramas and everything like that? And by the time that Williams begins his troubles in New Orleans, how did he usually face uh, these troubles? You know, uh, Williams actually uh, did fairly well uh, in terms of all of the, the legal hassles that uh, went along with their profession. Uh, slave traders were you know, pretty routinely involved in uh, breach of warranty suits, or, or like in Louisiana where he's selling most of uh, his enslaved cargoes, uh, redhibition suits. Uh, when, when slave traders uh, would make these sales, they, they would often... Uh, have these, you know, guarantees that that this uh, 
uh, enslaved person was was healthy, was, was sound, uh, was a good you know carpenter or whatever the case happened to be. Um, Williams was uh, remarkably generous. If you look at the, uh, the the bills of sale that he executed in New Orleans, uh, a lot of these are available uh, at the New Orleans Notarial Archive. Uh, he, he extends very generous terms uh, to his buyers, especially his repeat buyers uh, who had, you know, some of the bigger like sugar plantations uh, in, in Louisiana. Uh, so, I mean, he, he was he was quite generous with all of that. If, in, if anybody came back uh, complaining uh, that, well, this this enslaved person wasn't really quite what I wanted. He very readily, you know, exchanged them for, uh, for another person, uh, that he had, uh, within his stock. Um, and you know, if, if the one that they wanted was, was, uh, of a lower value, he'd give them the, 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 the replacement individual plus, you know, the, the difference in cash. He was very accommodating in, in that sense. So, you know, he fares a lot better in terms of these kinds of redhibition suits than uh, some of the other traders uh, in New Orleans, like a like a Theophilus Freeman or, or a Bernard Kendig. They they end up in court uh, for that kind of thing a lot more. Uh, slave traders are often also accused of you know slave stealing or or kidnapping. Uh, Williams avoids that kind of thing too. Uh, what what he does get charged with pretty frequently uh, is wrongfully imprisoning uh, free black people uh, at at the Yellow House in Washington D.C. Uh, and and of course this this would have been you know terrifying for for these individuals because they're they're free uh, they end up being imprisoned in a slave pen. Uh, and, and they know that it's only a matter of time before they end up, uh, being sold, you know, to the South as, as enslaved people. So, uh, there's actually quite a few, uh, lawsuits, uh, available at the National Archives to, to document, uh, these free black people and their struggles to, to try and get out. Of the uh, of the Yellow House, uh, they're filing petitions. They're securing writs of habeas corpus so that they can you know appear before a judge and uh, have their case heard uh, expeditiously before it's too late, and they end up you know losing their freedom. Uh, one of the big players, uh, you know, helping them out is the uh, the district attorney uh, in the District of Columbia, uh, by the name of Francis Scott Key, uh, who, you know, he's, he's a much older man by this point, but, but the guy who, you know, uh, wrote the lyrics to the Star Spangled Banner, uh, he ends up being a, a prominent attorney, uh, in, in Washington, DC. Uh, and he ends up, uh, representing a number of, of free black people, uh, in, in their effort to try and earn their liberation, uh, from, from the yellow house. And when Williams eventually, you know, faces his legal troubles in New Orleans, one of them, 
more most interesting things that I found about it, uh, found out about it was that it, his trial became a sort of constitutional issue for the state of Louisiana. You know, just this one person's trial um, over, you know, wrongfully bringing in enslaved convicts and supposedly trying to sell them. You would, you would think that that would just be, you know, his own affair. But as you point out, it becomes this kind of big issue for the state of Louisiana. And so how did this happen? Well, you know, he ultimately ends up uh, in Louisiana involved in, let me count, like five trials, grand total, uh, related to the importation of uh, this particular cargo of enslaved convicts. Um, and, And initially... Uh, in in the first district court, uh, a lot of the uh, the issues merely concerned uh, things like intent, uh, because you know William H. Williams, uh, when when he's uh, arrested uh, for importing these uh, convict slaves, uh, he says that well that should not really have happened because he had no intention of selling these enslaved convicts uh, in Louisiana, you know, contrary to that 1817 law. Uh, he, he said he was only passing through uh, Louisiana that he was going to deliver these enslaved convicts to the foreign country of Texas. This is 1840, so Texas is an independent slaveholding republic. Uh, they are eligible to receive these kinds of convict slaves in Texas. So he says he's passing through. He has no intention of violating the law. Uh, but the state of Louisiana prosecutes him anyway because they say, well, the intention doesn't matter. It's the importation that is the, the issue here. And the, the folks in Louisiana, the attorney general, they're, they're arguing that we have a real you know, safety issue uh, that you know, we need to protect the citizens of uh, Louisiana from this uh, you know dangerous uh, enslaved criminal element that you are you know, introducing into our state. Um, the the funny thing about it, though, is that the way the Louisiana state law was structured is that uh, if Williams was found guilty, the the state was to uh, seize the enslaved people from him and then sell them. So, so they would be, you know, purchased and released into the enslaved population of Louisiana anyway. So Williams could counter argue that and say, well, if you're concerned about safety, uh, give the slaves back to me and I will carry them out of here. So on that basis, these, these conflicting issues of intention and safety, they, there's two hung juries initially. There's a third trial. Uh, Williams is found guilty. But then we get to the, the appeal, and this is what raises the more constitutional issues uh, with respect to uh, the state of Louisiana, because the, the state had uh, prosecuted uh, Williams uh, criminally. They said that, that it, this was a, a criminal case. But Williams argued that it was actually a, a civil case. 
which which he knew because the punishment for it was nothing more than a substantial fine. So this leads to a, a, a case appearing before the Louisiana State Supreme Court uh, in 1842. Uh, and uh, Williams actually ends up you know, winning this case. Uh, the, the state had said that he shouldn't even be there because at the time the Constitution of Louisiana did not allow appeals in, in criminal cases. But, but the, the Supreme Court of Louisiana wanted to hear that case and threatened the lower court judge with imprisonment if they didn't forward the case to them. Uh, but then the state uh, got a rehearing of the case on different constitutional grounds, kind of determining how they actually defined what was a civil suit and what was not. Uh, so there's another case before the Supreme Court in 1844. It's a, it's a colossal mess. Uh, a lot of which would have gotten uh, resolved when you know, Louisiana passes a new state constitution uh, in the mid-1840s. So a lot of this would have been cleared up if it had just happened a couple years later. Uh, but, but as it was, it, it created uh, a, a great deal of consternation among the, uh, the legal scholars in Louisiana. And one of the things that you just mentioned was, you know, the issue of what to do with the enslaved convicts and that, you know, Louisiana, by their own logic, doesn't want them, but ends up having to basically take them and then sell them into the state, which is, as you point out, pretty much exactly what happens. And so what sort of experience did these enslaved convicts face in Louisiana? Okay, well, well, in 1840, uh, initially... Uh, the, the enslaved people, uh, they're down to like 26 of them uh, by this point. Uh, one was sold illegally while still in the Chesapeake. Uh, but 26 enslaved people are, are, uh, are arrested. And at, at that point, uh, initially they were all uh, taken to uh, the watch house in New Orleans. Uh, from there, it's a little difficult to, to track them. That they, they get farmed out, from the best I was able to tell, to various different uh, incarceration facilities uh, in Louisiana. Uh, but, uh, you know, their whole status is in limbo uh, until the 1844 Supreme Court case, the second of the two Supreme Court cases. So, you know, they're uh, basically, you know, incarcerated for these four years. Uh, and at that point, I think they, they get kind of redistributed again, and you've got the 10 of them that end up in the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Baton Rouge. Those are the 10 that I had originally you know, found in the records that inspired the whole thing in the first place. Uh, and you know, when they're in that penitentiary in Baton Rouge, they, uh, they're, they're, you know, they're still enslaved. Uh, but their new master is the state of Louisiana, uh, and they end up working for the state. Uh, they, you know, they're clearing out bayous, they're building roads, they end up uh, uh, working in uh, the various, like the brick-making uh, factory that they have there in, in the prison. Uh, they're doing all kinds of different things uh, along that line. I, I assume that the... Uh, uh, enslaved female convicts, because there were half a dozen women, 
they would have been doing the, the cleaning and washing uh, that the, the women in the uh, penitentiary did. Uh, but uh, they end up just having a, a different master uh, for a period of, of many years, ultimately, because uh, Williams, uh, you know, he doesn't give up uh, after the Supreme Court rules against him uh, in 1844. He's basically going to devote the rest of his life to trying to get these uh, enslaved convicts back. Uh, so all of them, they're just going to be laboring uh, in various incarceration facilities while he's going to continually uh, pursue their return. And as you just mentioned, uh, Williams, you know, continues to, you know, try and get these people back. And he continues after, you know, going more, or should say, while doing all this, he continues his slave trading business. And as you point out in the book, uh, mostly from New Orleans, and he leaves, you know, his brother in charge of the Yellow House. And so one of the things that you point out about the Yellow House's presence and, you know, Williams's own continuation in the domestic slave trade is that the Yellow House uh, contributes a lot to national debates about slavery, especially in the nation's capital itself. And so how does that, you know, what does that look like? And how does the Yellow House eventually close? You know, is it Williams just closing up shop or is something else going on? Of course, the slave trade in, in Washington, D.C., uh, was uh, a long-term thorn in the side of, of abolitionists. There's, uh, there are complaints about the slave trade uh, in Washington, D.C., dating back decades by the time my story starts. Uh, but, but the Yellow House does become uh, a real kind of focus of, of discontent. Um, there, there's all kinds of complaints about, uh, certainly in, in the, you know, the 1820s, uh, and, and early part of the 1830s about, uh, slave coffles, uh, being led through, uh, the streets of Washington, DC, that the, the slaves, you know, chained two by two, uh, being led down Maryland Avenue across the long bridge over the Potomac over to, you know, the, the waiting ships. Uh, in, in Alexandria uh, for uh, for transport via the coastwise slave trade to, to the deep south. Th- those kinds of images, uh, you know, were, were a real you know, stick in the craw of uh, of abolitionists and, and, and other anti-slavery forces uh, in in Congress. It, it was a real uh, disgraceful thing, you know, to to, to see this. You know, on a routine basis, the Yellow House really gets more involved in in the politics of the era in the uh, the presidential election of eighteen forty four. Uh, that year, and and by this point, uh, Thomas Williams, uh, William H. Williams' younger brother, is in charge of running the Yellow House. Uh, Thomas Williams apparently is the one who raises a Polk and Dallas flag uh, in the 1844 presidential campaign season. Uh, James Knox Polk was running for president uh, with his, uh, you know, uh, running mate, uh, George Dallas. And, you know, there's this Polk and Dallas flag is, is flying on a flagpole right, you know, above the, uh, the Yellow House slave jail. 
and and this created you know quite the uh, quite the controversy uh, in the press in in Washington D.C. The uh, you have the, the Democratic newspaper, the the Washington Globe, and and the Whig paper, the National Intelligencer. They're battling back and forth. Uh, with their own different interpretations of, of what this flag, you know, means, uh, because the, the 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 Democratic paper, uh, the Globe, they did not want uh, their their nominee James Polk associated with the slave trader. So what they said, their argument was that uh, he erected this flag, uh, Williams did, because uh, actually. Uh, he was uh, he was a Whig, and and he's raising this Polka Dallas flag to try and and smear the Democrat, but uh, but it's all this this hope he's going to perpetrate on the public. Uh, the National Intelligencer, the Whig paper, says that well maybe this is a much simpler argument that that Williams is flying the Polk Dallas flag because he supports the Polk and Dallas ticket. Uh, so, so there's this big back and forth there, and it gets picked up by newspapers in you know New York and Boston. So, so people are reading about this uh, across the country. But uh, the because there is you know even though slave trading has a certain uh, disreputable aspect to it, you know individual slave traders uh, were not. In reality, viewed that way, I mean, they're they're prominent citizens, they're wealthy citizens. Uh, they oftentimes, you know, served in political offices. Uh, they were they were not the social outcasts that they were oftentimes portrayed as being. They're they're you know very prominent figures uh, in their communities. But still, that this this nagging issue of the slave trade in Washington D.C. Uh, becomes one of those issues uh, that is dealt with in the Compromise of, of 1850. Uh, that Compromise of 1850 abolished the slave trade in Washington, D.C. itself. Uh, and now the Yellow House, where uh, William H. Williams you know, uh, ran his business, was in Washington, D.C. You know, proper. So uh, he was very directly affected by this. He had you know, the last biggest operation uh, with respect to slave trading in Washington, D.C. Uh, so the Compromise of 1850 uh, affected him uh, more directly than, than any other uh, slave trader. By that point, you know, uh, the, the, the formerly Virginia portion uh, of Washington, D.C., of the District of Columbia had already been uh, retroceded to Virginia. So um, it's really William H. Williams is the, the guy who's affected by the Compromise of 1850. Uh, he might have relocated uh, across the river uh, to Alexandria had he so chosen, but uh, he opts not to do that. Uh, he closes down the, uh, the Yellow House instead. Uh, and it's not too long before the, the Yellow House is, is torn down uh, and, and uh, a garden is grown in its location and there's, there's a guy selling flowers there. Uh, but Williams wasn't completely 
done with the slave trade yet because he's still going to be pursuing uh, these enslaved convicts uh, that he was forced to surrender uh, back in 1840. And yeah, so we have, you know, this pretty, you know, gripping tale of, you know, William's career as a slave trader. And, you know, our listeners might have noticed that, you know, we weren't going to go into all the details of what's going on because we want you to uh, become readers and pick up the book yourself. And so once again, you know, we have Jeff Forrest's Williams Gang, a notorious slave trader in his cargo of black convicts. So we have this great book in front of us right now, uh, Dr. Fort. What might be what might we expect from you in the future? What might you be working on right now? Uh, right now, well, the, the honest answer right now is that I'm converting all of my classes to an online format. <laughs> but uh, in terms of my research, uh, I'm working on a book called uh, "Slave Ships to Freedom." Uh, it's uh, an outgrowth of of this project. Uh, it concerns uh, four uh, domestic slave trading vessels uh, that were uh, conveying uh, enslaved cargoes from uh, Alexandria, Richmond, other places, uh, to points uh, deeper in the South. Uh, and in each of these four cases, uh, these ships were either uh, shipwrecked or blown off course to holdings in the British colonial Atlantic. And the British authorities uh, in the Bahamas, or Bermuda, as the case may be, uh, these uh, uh, enslaved cargoes in all four cases were liberated by those British officials. Uh, and, and this sets off uh, a whole big debate uh, internationally between the United States and Great Britain uh, as the American owners uh, of the uh, enslaved peoples on board or the insurers, uh, as the case may be. Uh, they sought uh, recompense for those uh, enslaved people that the British had liberated. Uh, so there's a lot uh, of diplomatic correspondence back and forth uh, there's there's some uh, fireworks in uh, the halls of Congress also as these owners and insurance companies are trying to get their money back. So uh, that's what I'm working on now. It's basically a story of reparations, uh, although those reparations are being understood in a, in a very uh, pre-Civil War 19th century well, that certainly sounds like a interesting uh, piece of work, and I'm sure once that's done, we'll have you right back onto the program. But in any case, Dr. Fort, thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Oh, well, thank you. It's my pleasure. <laughs>